Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Congressman Adam Schiff, uh, and uh, thank you for joining today's virtual Commonwealth Club event. The club would like to thank the Psychology Forum and the Bernard Osher Foundation for supporting today's Good Lit event. It is my great pleasure to introduce Jason Kander, Majority 54 podcast host and author of Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. Jason is a former Army captain and served in the Missouri State Legislature and as Missouri Secretary of State. He founded Let America Vote, a national campaign against voter suppression. He is also president of the Veterans Community Project. In addition to his advocacy work supporting our country's veterans and veterans' families, Jason also talks about his battle with his own, his own battle with PTSD in hopes of bringing much needed attention to trauma and mental health awareness and treatment. Uh, we'll be discussing a lot in the next hour, and it is my great pleasure to join uh, my friend uh, for this discussion. Um, I would uh, encourage you to submit any questions you have um, using the YouTube text chat. Um, and um, Jason, welcome to the Commonwealth Club, and uh, thank you for allowing me to moderate the discussion today. Uh, thank you, Adam, for offering to do this. Uh, for those watching, uh, for Adam's very successful and very good book that came out a few months ago, I had the pleasure of doing this and being in the role he's in tonight uh, for an event in St. Louis. And he very generously said, well, when your book comes out, I hope I can do the same for you. And I was like, yeah, we're going to do that. Uh, so um, took him up on it right away. So thank you to you and thank you to the Commonwealth Club for, for doing this. Well, uh, it's a treat. Um, and I think I get the easier job today. I get to ask the questions and you've got to give all the difficult answers. Um, although we will probably get the, the best questions from the audience. Um, but let me start out uh, with, the, you know, the threshold question. Um, you've written other works before. Um, and what uh, propelled you to write this book? Uh, when did you make the decision to do it? And, uh, and, and tell us a little bit about how this book differs from your first. Yeah, well, let's start there. Um, it differs from my first book in a couple of ways. One, I, I think it's way better, <laughs> to be really honest. Uh, um, you know, you get better at things as you go on. And it's my my second book. Uh, third, if you count a, a children's book I wrote with my son, but it was like 50 words. So I, I don't know that it counts as like in the same category. Um, it's much better. But you know what it, it also is, is it's, um, it's obviously just much more personal. Uh, that Outside the Wire is a book I'm, I'm proud of. It did well. Um, but it also was... It's not entirely like a, okay, I'm going to run for president book, uh, but it's like closer to that, uh, certainly than, than, um, well, it's, it's, it's not that far from that. Right. Like I was like, at the time I wrote it, I was like, I'm going to run for president, but I didn't want to write like a, what I consider a pretty boring, like I'm going to run for president book. Uh, so it, you know, it was a collection of vignettes and stories, um, from the campaign trail that was much more for like people who are into politics and are thinking about serving uh, in office. And I think it's a valuable book for that. This book is much more of a true memoir and it's a memoir in the sense that uh, it is really about, you know, as you said, about my struggle with PTSD set against what I was doing politically. But the reason I wrote it to get to the first part of your question is um if I had had this book 14 years ago to read, if it had existed, I think I would have gone to get help then, like when I came home from Afghanistan. 
And there, you know, it didn't exist. And I felt like there were a lot of people out there, whether they were veterans or just anybody else who's been through any kind of trauma, who were probably making a lot of the same, I don't want to say mistakes, but doing a lot of the same things that I was had been doing for many years to try and cope, to try to get by and doing everything except going to get treatment. And so I felt like, well, if I could tell my story, uh, that might be helpful to a lot of people. And the process of writing the book itself, um, was that helpful? Was it therapeutic to put this down on paper or was that uh, kind of an additional trauma? I know in my own book, writing it was at times very traumatic and other times very cathartic. But when you're writing about PTSD, how did that affect uh, what you had lived through? Uh, I'd say, you know, very similar in the sense that it was kind of both at times. Like, I wouldn't say it was, it was, in my case, I wouldn't say it was newly traumatic, but I would say that there's certain parts of the book that were like triggering for me, right? So like, as you know, um, chapter two is, it takes place in Afghanistan. It's a single day. Um, I did that because I didn't want this to be a book that was just for, you know, like men in their, in their sixties who only read Tom Clancy books, right? Like I didn't want it to be just like a book about war. I wanted to, in the first couple chapters, get the reader through me joining the army, me going to Afghanistan, me coming home so we can get to the point of the book, which is me living with undiagnosed, uh, unacknowledged PTSD um, and untreated. And so in order to do that, like I needed to take the reader into what my job was in Afghanistan, but I didn't want to write like a, a tomb about, you know, so I just said, okay, I'm going to pick a day that I just happen to remember well, not a particularly remarkable day. And I'm going to take the reader through that day for a chapter. Well, it took me about three weeks to write that chapter. And during that period, that was very difficult because uh, I kind of felt like I was in that day, right? So like, this is probably similar for you in, in, in writing about January 6th in your book. Like, as I'm writing that experience, it's like, you know, anytime you're working on a book, like you're either working on the book or you're thinking about the book. So I kind of felt stuck in that day for that three weeks. And there were other parts that were kind of difficult to write. But for the rest of the book, yeah, I would say it was in some ways therapeutic, or at least it helped me get a better sense of like, quite literally my own story, which allowed me to um, think about it in, in different ways. And and once once I put the entire thing together, it was it was much easier to feel like, oh, my wife and I, we really did something here. Like we really went through uh, something once I had the full scope of it. And and that's been good for us. Well, one of the things, and it's a, it's a wonderful uh, uh, book, an important book, um, a deeply interesting and moving book. Uh, and, and I was mentioning to Jason before we started the discussion, it's just super well-written. Uh, and uh, and I, maybe I'm the victim of the, the stereotype that don't expect politicians to write good books. Um, it is really well-written. And one of the things that I, I so appreciated about it is it's a heavy topic, um, but you, you inject a lot of levity in the book, um, which is really important. Um, and I think one of the most powerful scenes you begin with in the book, when uh, you you first go to seek treatment, uh, and uh, you have this wonderful story about um, walking into the the veterans facility and being recognized, of course, uh, having run for high profile office, um, and being relieved that the psychologist who sits down with you actually doesn't recognize you, and you. Uh, and you describe uh, that conversation. Would you tell uh, us a little bit about that? Because 
Uh, I don't want to give too much away, but it was wonderful. Sure. Yeah, no, I'm happy to. Thanks. Um, yeah, well, first I'll say um, I'm glad that you enjoyed the levity. Uh, I've, I've really, some of the reviews that have meant the most to me are the people who have said like that they laughed and they cried uh, because when you're going to write a book about a subject this heavy and you want people to actually read it, like you, you better have some like funny moments or they're not going to. And also because once now that I'm through it and now that I've reached this phase of my life, I think of as post-traumatic growth, it's objectively humorous. Like, you know, just the entire absurdity of like, I was pretty well running for president while I had an untreated, undiagnosed psychiatric disorder. And given that I'm the only person that's ever admitted to that, but can't possibly be the only person that that's true about, uh, it is, you know, objectively kind of funny. So the story was, uh, that it was my first day at the VA and yeah, like you said, uh, I was getting recognized a lot. Most people uh, didn't, a few people said something, but most people, it was just that thing that you've experienced too, where you can tell people recognize you because they kind of do a double take. And I was being checked into uh, the suicide hold room uh, at the emergency department at the Kansas City VA because I had indicated that I had suicidal thoughts. And so by the time I'm in the room and the psych resident comes to see me, they've taken away all my belongings. I'm in like four sizes, two big scrubs. And I'm a, this 37 year old vet with my knees like pulled up to my chest and sitting on this metal bed. And the guy comes in and, he, and like you said, I was, I was relieved he didn't recognize me. And then we start talking and I tell him all these symptoms that I'd had for years that I hadn't really told anybody other than my wife uh, about, you know, my night terrors and my feeling like I was in danger all the time and negative feelings about myself and depression and suicidal thoughts. So we have this conversation lasts about a half hour. And then he asked me, he says, so do you have like a particularly stressful job or something? So I explained, well, I'm in politics. And he's like, what does that mean? And I try to, I just try to give him the short version. I say, well, I was going to run for president earlier this year, but then I decided instead to run for mayor of Kansas City. And, uh, you know, I'm dropping out of that tomorrow so I can come here and get help. And he's just like, president of what? And I'm like, <laughs> of the United States. And he says, well, who told you you could run for president? And now I've gone from like relieved he didn't recognize me to irritated that he doesn't believe me. So I say, I don't know what to tell you, man. I spent an hour and a half just me and Barack Obama in his office. He seemed to think it was a pretty good idea. And he sat there for a second and thought about it. And then he says, Barack Obama told you you could run for president. And he asked me, he says, how often would you say you hear voices? Uh, and that, that was my first day at the VA. Yeah. So, um, when you were you found yourself in that room and they've taken your belt away and your shoelaces away, um, there's nothing in the room, I guess, sounds like it, but a cot and a metal toilet. Mm-hmm. Um, did the thought run through your head? Shit, maybe this was a mistake. Um, maybe I shouldn't come here. What have I done? Um, I, that was the thought. That was the kind of stuff that I was thinking like on the way there. But once I had answered, once I had gotten the sort of battery of questions from the intake person, and this was after, you know, this was like the day before, I think I had spoken to the woman on the veterans crisis line where I'd had this real realization that, um, oh, wow, I'm, I'm not different than all these other vets that have experienced it. I'd been telling myself this fiction. And when I, you know, I could tell from the way she talked to me, oh, I sound like all the rest. And then here I was, and I'm answering these questions and I'm hearing myself answer questions about you know, have you had thoughts about hurting yourself? How, how often do you have dark and intrusive thoughts? Do you have trouble sleeping? And I realized I'm answering yes to like everything. 
And so by the time I'm sitting there, it wasn't particularly reassuring to feel like, oh, this is where I should be. It was more like just taking stock, like, oh, okay, so this is where I am in life right now. Like, like I hadn't ended my mayoral campaign yet. I hadn't said anything public. So I knew, you know, I was just a few miles from the campaign office where a bunch of people were working to get me elected mayor and it was going well, like I was going to win the mayor's race. And so it was more like just this, like, not shocking, but like um, striking dichotomy or just realizing, wow, my life is about to take a major, a major turn. And I wasn't happy about it, but I recognized like, I, you know, I do need to be here. I was also at that point, like drained, like I'd been doing this for so long. I had hit rock bottom, right? Like I had, I had taken it as far as I could go. And I just didn't feel like I could go any farther. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about that. Um, how much did, did you delay seeking treatment or recognizing the condition because somewhere in the back of your head, you knew, okay, this would be um, majorly consequential in terms of my political future. I think there was a lot of it. I think at first, uh, at first it was that I just, well, throughout the time, this was the case, but I think the major factor for the first several years was that I just was denying to myself that I could have, in my mind, earned PTSD, right? Because, you know, I had been in very dangerous situations and had a unique and unconventional combat deployment, but I hadn't fired my weapon. Um, I, as an intelligence officer, you know, I, I did different things that were very dangerous, but, but I hadn't done that. And so in my mind, I was just like, that's not combat. Like I just kept telling myself that. And, and so for the first few years, I, I wouldn't acknowledge it to myself because I felt like it was, to me, it was stolen valor. Like I, you know, I had like a friend who had been shot. I had these things and it was like, I'm not going to go say that I got hurt when I didn't feel like my, my service was legitimate enough for that. There was no point at which I felt like personally, like, uh, that there was anything weak or wrong with getting help. I, I didn't, it was not a view I held personally. However, after a while, I definitely, as I was getting worse and worse, I definitely felt like other people would feel it was. And that, that stigma, I think, certainly played into it. So for instance, you know, when I first decided to run for mayor instead of president, I had made this promise to myself. I was like, I'm going to go become mayor and serve my community. And I thought that would make me feel better. It wouldn't have, but that's what I thought. But and the other promise, the other part of the promise was, I'm going to go to the VA to get help with whatever's going on with me. Now, I didn't at that point acknowledge to myself that it was PTSD, but I was like, maybe they can tell me what's going on. Um, and the thing was, is that when I went to fill out the paperwork the first time, uh, I wasn't totally honest because I was concerned about that stigma because I was still a person who saw myself as a future president. And I was just like, I can't. You know, what if somebody finds out that I'm saying, like, I stalk my house at night because I'm convinced there's intruders and I, you know, and I can't sleep and all, and all this sort of stuff. Um, so that was definitely a factor. So it just kind of over time, it started as just I wouldn't grant this to myself. And over time, it was like, well, it doesn't matter anyway, because I'm in politics now. Um, so I think it was both. And in your work with veterans, how common have you found it that others similarly feel they don't deserve the diagnosis, that what they experienced was not, um, you know, as traumatic as what others did, and therefore they feel like a pretender uh, to claim uh, their diagnosis? Uh, it's almost uniformly the case. It's amazing. Um, and it's why my initial announcement, it's why I heard from so many veterans who were like, 
telling me they felt seen by that. And that I realized that that was the most important thing I said in my initial announcement was that, that I had had this feeling that I hadn't earned PTSD. And the thing was, is like, it, it wasn't just people who, you know, did what I did. It was everybody. Like, it didn't matter how many deployments they had. It didn't matter. I mean, they, I mean, I'm talking people who received two purple hearts, you know, are telling me, yeah, I just compared to what my buddies did. Like it, it d- didn't seem like it counted to me. And, and um, <clears throat> so I write about in the book a little bit that what I came to understand was that there's this necessary form of brainwashing in, in the military that says, like from the moment you get in and it runs through the course of everything you do that just says, Hey, this is no big deal. Like what other people are doing is, is, is worse. So suck it up and drive on. And I say necessary because I don't really fault the military for that. The, the jobs are dangerous and they're hard. And for me to keep going into meetings with people who I knew might want to kidnap and kill me in a way that I was very vulnerable and nobody was coming to save me. I was more or less by myself. Like I had to believe that I had to think to myself, well, I'm not the only one doing this. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, the problem is, uh, that when you get out, nobody is like, okay, actually that was a really big deal. Like that's not normal. People don't usually do that. Um, and so you, in my case, like I went into civilian life feeling like, well, it can't be PTSD because what I did was no big deal. I have that on very good authority. And the thing is, Adam, like, it's not just veterans. I, it's just like, there's so many people with trauma and veterans in in a large way, we're fortunate in that now society has kind of said like, well, you get to have trauma. Like we, we, we acknowledge that you have trauma and then something needs to be dealt with. And, you know, people who've been in a bad car accident or a divorce or survived cancer or lost a loved one, society doesn't really say that to them. And, uh, and so I think no matter who you are, there's some level of having to battle this feeling that, well, maybe I should get help, but like, I it's nothing compared to what other people went through. So who am I to go get help? Um, is it, you know, I, I was really uh, intrigued too to see in the book that uh, you described putting on the uniform, I don't know if it was for the first time or not, but feeling like, uh, like an imposter, um, that you hadn't earned the uniform. Um, and that was before the experiences you had, obviously, in Afghanistan. Um, how, how much of um, that kind of self-doubt uh, have you had to deal with ever since, uh, sounds like, uh, a pretty young age? You know, it's interesting. It's a great question. It's been a very rare thing in my life. Uh, my parents, you know, I'm a, <clears throat> I'm a nice Jewish boy who had parents who equipped me with uh, an absurd level of self-confidence, um, and which, for which I'm very grateful. Uh, and so, yeah, like I remember, you know, I wrote about it in the book that that first time putting on the uniform, it was, you know, to show up to my first time at ROTC. So I hadn't like, you know, gone through basic training, you know, I was showing up to start training in ROTC and I, I did, I felt like an imposter, right? Now it wasn't long before I felt like, okay, this is my uniform. I've earned it. Um, but the interesting thing for me has been, uh, that there have been times in my life and most of it has been, I think, due to PTSD in the last, you know, decade and a half where I have felt like where I've had self-esteem problems where I have not esteemed myself in such a way that made me feel like an imposter. But usually in my career, I have had an outsized, really irrational confidence in my abilities. <laughs> and, and what's so funny about that is like, it was sort of, you know, when I was going through all these years with, you know, fighting PTSD without fighting it, you know, running from it, it was like my, my 
idea of my own abilities continued to climb, but my idea of my worth as a human continued to go down. And so what I was doing was, is I was trying to use sort of the, the positive feedback and the, and the, you know, um, commendation and that kind of thing that I would get for my abilities as sort of a salve for my feeling about myself, but it never worked. It was just, I was always chasing it. Um, and so the, and then the more of that I would get, the more I would rebut it in my own mind because I didn't feel I had done enough. I didn't feel uh, good about myself, but I knew, I knew I was very good at being a politician. Like I would really believed that I didn't think there was anybody better. I just didn't, I just thought most human beings were better. <laughs> so it's hard to explain. Um, it's why I took a whole book, I guess. Um, you mentioned uh, your experience uh, and you wrote about your experience in Afghanistan. Um, what was it like for you? What was it like for other veterans uh, to watch the chaotic withdrawal and the loss of life surrounding that withdrawal? And, you know, the people you worked with uh, in intelligence who were, whose lives were at risk and struggled to get out of the country. Um, how much did that sort of trigger um, uh, what you've been coping with? It was very difficult. Um, and for me, and that's one where it began as a triggering experience and then became newly traumatic. So, you know, I, um, it, I, when I, I, I believed and have believed for several years that it was time to end our, our presence in Afghanistan because we had just gone past when, you know, when our mission really made a lot of sense for the country there. But I also, it was a whole different thing to see it actually play out and to see it play out the way it did. It was for me very similar, I think, to the way it was for a lot of, and it continues to be for a lot of Afghan vets. Um, so that was very difficult for me. And then what happened was, is I, like a lot of Afghan vets, got really involved in Afghan evacuation efforts and ended up, um, you know, uh, actually initially just working to get my translator's family out and then also uh, three other families. I say families because the people we worked with there, you know, over a year, over a war that lasts as many years as it did, they all have families by now. And so uh, there were about four families initially that a few buddies and I were working to try to get out. We weren't successful in getting them out through the airport, which was devastating. But then we promised them that we would find a way. And over the course of, and I write about this in more detail in the book, but over the course of um, uh, several weeks, we ended up staging this rather kind of wild operation, uh, which they all did on the ground. We just handled the stuff on our end where we had a fake wedding to throw off the Taliban and got, you know, hundreds of people out of the country because we ended up collecting a bunch of other vets who had families they were trying to get out. And, uh, and so to this day, it's difficult. Like there's um, about almost 380 people uh, in Albania right now awaiting clearance to come into the United States. Um, and uh, they're all people we got out that ended up starting a little organization that has gotten about 2000 people out of the country. But the initial group that we got out is still in Albania waiting to come here. I just was in St. Louis yesterday because we finally got to welcome the first family. And it was one of the families I initially was working to, to get out. Um, but they only got to come here because um, the Mr. Azimi, the gentleman that we were helping uh, has pretty advanced cancer and he needed to get here. He couldn't be in Albania for treatment. So we still have a lot of work to do to get people the rest of the way. But the, to answer your question, it was initially really hard and triggering, but turned out it was newly traumatic. And so uh, my, but my therapist, Nick at the VA, like he acknowledged that with me and he and my wife and I, the three of us, like we worked through it and 
I actually just finished up like a, a second round, like a five week round of going to weekly therapy to deal with this new trauma, which is one of the lessons that I lay out toward the end of the book that, you know, this stuff, you can deal with this stuff, you can treat it, but you also got to recognize that like life happens. There's going to be other things that you're, pro- you're not like done. You're going to go back and address other things. And do you think, uh, and this is, I think, a very important part of your book is to talk about how treatment for PTSD can be successful uh, because there is a stereotype version of what people experience with PTSD that is inevitably leads to a terrible end um, or has terrible points uh, within it, um, uh, domestic violence, drug abuse, other things. Uh, what does successful treatment of PTSD look like and, and how common is it successful? Yeah. Um, it's a really, it's like the important question, right? And um, uh, I think to have successfully treated PTSD, and I'm not a clinician, but my understanding is, is it's basically just getting it to the point where it doesn't disrupt your life, which is in, an important way to talk about it because, you know, PTSD is based on memories. It's based on things that happened. And so you're not going to cure it, right? Like the memories are not going to go away. Um, but I, I just think of it as an injury. So I compare it to my, my knee injury that I had before I went into the army. I had to get surgery, physical therapy to go in. So that means that, you know, now, and, and then I went into the army and I did well. They made me run a lot. I was at least good enough at running and I can still run. Uh, but, you know, I ice my knee. Like I know how to manage what goes on with my knee so that I can do the things I want to do. Uh, PTSD is the same way. Like I just, I know the things I need to do to manage it and it doesn't limit me from doing anything now that I know those things and that I've dealt with the underlying trauma, the underlying injury. Um, but yeah, the perception out there is that PTSD is basically the perception is that it's a terminal diagnosis that, uh, and which I think is a huge factor in why a lot of people don't go get help, right? Like if you think that PTSD is a terminal diagnosis, why would you want to go get diagnosed? Because you either think, well, it's going to end my life or best case scenario, it just ends my career. It's just terminal to whatever it is I do for a living. And the truth is that people who commit to the treatment and do the homework, that the vast majority get better, that they get to a place where, uh, as I put it in the book, where they've tamed the monster, where PTSD is something that they manage like any other injury. And for me, you know, I was starting to get better in therapy and feeling really bad about it because I was like, I don't like, why am I getting better when it seems like no one does? And I went to my therapist about it and he had to show me these studies. It's the vast majority of people get better. We just don't know that because like you said, depictions on screen and the news, it's, it tends to almost always be people in free fall, people who are, you know, committing domestic violence or, or using drugs or robbing a bank. Um, because they're always depicting people before they've been treated. And really, like, people are just walking all around us all the time who have treated their trauma and are going about their lives, but we don't hear those stories. And if some of those stories were more in the forefront, I think more people would avail themselves of the help that's out there, which is a big reason why I wanted to write the book. Um, I I, um, want to ask you, too, I love the the doctor's question, are you in some kind of stressful job? (laughs) Um, And uh, how much is the stress, and I don't mean just politics, obviously, but for others that have PTSD, how much does their everyday workplace stress um, aggravate uh, PTSD? Uh, Is there a kind of a synergistic uh, or mutually destructive quality about both at the same time? Yeah, look, I think if 
like if you have post-traumatic stress that hasn't been treated, any stress, like for me, what happened was, and I had to go to therapy to learn this, is that my brain had learned that you, if you control the situation you're in, you'll survive, right? Like as an intelligence officer in Afghanistan, I needed to know where all the doors were. I wanted to face them if possible. I needed to know how many people with guns are between me and my vehicle so that if I have to shoot my way out of this room, how many people do I have to shoot between me and my vehicle? How, you know, which way am I going to go to get there? Um, and my brain didn't really, you know, it didn't get to a point where it believed that it was out of that situation. So every stressful situation that I went in and that I couldn't access or could, couldn't feel some level of control over, I, I sort of lost the ability for a long time to triage threats between like harmless, oh, well, it's just, okay, it's a threat to my career versus my life. And so the situations where I had no control whatsoever were the most difficult for me. So it's one of the reasons I write in the book about election nights. Campaigns, I felt some illusion of control, right? I'm out there, I can, I can be doing things. I can be knocking on doors or making fundraising calls or whatever. I can be doing things. Uh, to feel like I'm moving the ball forward and controlling my situation. But once the polls have closed and there's nothing left to do, I felt completely without control. And my brain took that as like the only way I could describe it. And the way I felt at the time was I felt like I was dying. And so, yeah, um, if you haven't dealt with your underlying trauma and you haven't gotten that, to that point where you understand how your brain is manifesting stress, then laying stress on top of it, um, certainly exacerbates it. And, and it's why, like, you know, I wrote about my story, which, you know, basically pursuing the presidency while I had PTSD, but really just because that'll get people to read about this. But it, I tried to do it in a way where nobody can come away from this and go like, okay, well, that's not, that's not the same for me. Like I'm not running for president or Senate or any of that, you know, they're like, I'm, you know, managing 20 people at my job, but no, like, I tried to write it in such a way that people would see that my situation wasn't unique. Um, one of the things that makes your book a great book is it, it's an overarching story and it's an overarching narrative, but it's also a collection of stories. Um, and tell us uh, about your favorite story in the book. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, I think my favorite story in the book is probably, uh, about you know when we when we started to my wife and I both started to get help. My favorite parts of the book, in general, are the contributions by Diana. So one of the things that we wanted to do differently here is that you know because the the story is told by me and I as you go through the story you're having it told by me but only with the language and the knowledge that I had at the time you are in the story. So. When I'm running for, you know, basically the whole period before I go to get help, like I don't have access to terms like hypervigilance or avoidance, right? And if I were to use those terms, somebody reading the book who's not been to therapy is not going to relate to what I'm saying. So I tried to access my prior mindset and relate what was going on, you know, using the language I had available at the time. The thing about that is, is that if that's the only narrator, well, then you're going to have a hard time, like always relating to that person. So it's one of the reasons that my wife, Diana is also there because so many people who will read this book, just know someone with mental health issues, but they don't have them themselves. Well, I wanted them to have somebody to connect with. And so Diana tells several stories in the book 
both about what she was going through, but also about what she was observing in, in me. And my favorite one uh, is probably about our dog, Talia, um, which, you know, we, uh, we decided to get a dog before we had gotten any actual treatment. So, um, and Diana ended up with secondary PTSD. So yet another gift that I gave to her uh, from just living with me. Um, and so we both needed therapy. And so I make this big announcement that I'm going to go get therapy. And then there's this period of time before I start and our dogs had passed away a couple of years earlier. So we said, okay, let's get a dog. Actually, Max Cleland had given me some advice. He said, get a dog. I said, okay. So we go to get this dog, but the thing is we hadn't had therapy yet. We didn't know that we were hypervigilant. We didn't know that like one of the symptoms of PTSD was that we felt like we were in danger all the time and we weren't. All we knew was the world is an extremely dangerous place. And so instead of getting a service animal, which is what we should have gotten, we got a protection dog, like a dog trained to protect us. So we got this big old uh, dog. Her name's Talia. She's still our dog. And so I just think it's one of the more fun parts of the book where I get to relate what it was like to, um, as, as I put it, uh, adopt Jason Bourne and bring him into the house. <laughs> so we, we basically ended up getting a dog with PTSD and we became her service animals. And so uh, we had to while we were getting therapy, we had to train this dog to like cuddle on the couch. And um, <clears throat> now she's like a great cuddle dog and, and everything. But she's also like if people walk in front of the house, she makes sure we know. So it's one of the funnier parts of the book, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, the decision to have Diana write um, her recollections in the book, uh, was that something she was eager to do, had to be coaxed into doing? Um, you know, you're the public person in the family. Um, did that require, require her to be more revealing, more public than she wanted to? Yeah, it's a, it's it's uh, it's like what she felt like it was really important and necessary because, you know, not only had we learned so much about PTSD, we had learned so much about what families go through with this, what she had gone through with secondary PTSD, and we wanted people to know that. And so it was like, well, this is more people we can help. And I mean, the other thing is like, I'm not the only best-selling author in the family. Like I really wanted her part of the, as part of the book. Cause she's, she's a very good author herself. And, and so why not take advantage of that? But at first she was, she was like all in, she was like, yeah, absolutely. That's what we should do. And then, uh, so I started writing my portions and then I would give them to her. And, um, it, it took her a little while because she was like, you know, for the average reader, like most people are like, I read this book in two days. It's really, you know, really flattering. And nobody's like, God, this was hard to read. But if the book is about your own shit <laughs> that you went through, it's harder. And so uh, the people who took the longest to read the book are my wife and my mom. And so Diana, you know, she would go through these um, passages and get ready to put her own stuff in. But like, it took some time. And at first we were um, working on it at night. Like I would work on it during the day. And then at night, like after we were put the kids to bed, I'd be like, okay, well, here's a passage. And so we did that for like a couple of weeks before she was like, Hey, I need to work on this. Like in the morning, like I can't, I can't do this and then try to go to sleep. Um, so it was difficult, but ultimately uh, it just made the book so much better. And like I said, those are my favorite parts of the book. Well, I, I can relate in part. Uh, my wife was the only one I would let read the book while I was writing it. Um, and uh, I'm so glad that I did uh, for many reasons. Uh, she had a much more objective eye than anything I could bring to it. But uh, I do remember vividly being in the kitchen while she was 
in the living room reading on the couch and having her shriek uh, and tell me that I got our wedding date wrong. <laughs> so I, I, I want to know how you ever got a second date uh, because uh, your wife tells a story about how uh, she was a backup date um, when your, your prom date backed out in high school. And, uh, and she was picked because I guess your, your, your first choice uh, felt that she was a non-threatening, you know, stand-in. Yeah. Um, well, Diana was uh, a, she's, she came to the U.S. at the age of eight as a refugee from Ukraine. And so, you know, I think, and like, I think that's why, you know, she was different. And so I think maybe that's why, like, her friend, who I was dating at the time, saw her as non-threatening and everything. But like, I was like, she's i was just like well she's beautiful and looks different than anybody else here in kansas city and mm-hmm. uh and uh and so uh though how did i get the second date i think um i don't know i guess she had a good time at date number one which was my prom uh and um i don't know i'd have to ask her i she uh I don't know. I'll be honest, Adam. I think she dug me already. I think. Uh, <laughs> and, and so I got, I there's, got there's that self-confidence. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I mean, the, the story that's not in the book that when, whenever anybody says anything about my self-confidence, Diana always has a go-to story, which is that we had been dating for a few weeks and I like told her I loved her. And she was like, and she had never said that to anybody. We were 17. And she was like, well, I'll get back to you. And I said, <laughs> I said, you love me. <laughs> thing i wanted to ask you um how many pages is the book remind me uh 200 and hang on 200 and some this is like 203 204 um how long was the the first draft that you sent to your editor how much hit the cutting room floor and what hit the cutting room floor that you have the most regret didn't get included? Uh, yeah, that's an awesome question. Um, I don't know how many pages it would translate to, but it was 10,000 words that got cut. And they mostly got cut by Diana, um, which was awesome because, I mean, at the time it wasn't awesome because, I mean, you know, I'm sure you're like me, like once you've wavered over a passage, you're just like in love with it. Like you're just yeah. like, this is, and, you know, and there's always like, in each riff there's like one line that you're like oh god that is such a i'm so proud of that line i worked on it for so long and and i'm real bad about that i get really wed to stuff and diana my editor did a great job of this but diana like went to the next level and what diana did is she would go through a section and she would say to me she'd be like "Uh, this is entertaining and interesting she's like what does the reader get out of this and I, and anytime I couldn't answer that, I knew like, oh, that's coming out. And like, for instance, there's a, a, a bit in there where I write about my grandfather, because I read about how I was already going through therapy when my grandfather passed away and, uh, and how I was able to actually process that. And it was a big step for me, but I had written, I, and there's probably like, I don't know, 500 words in there about my grandfather. Um, I had probably written 2,500 words about my grandfather. And they were all in there. And, you know, Diana loved Pop, my grandfather, too. Like, we were both very close to him. And she that was, like, the hardest where she was like, look, I love Pop as much as anybody. She's like, and all of this is wonderful. She's like, and I remember she goes, but for the reader, that's your grandfather. 
it's not their grandfather. Oh man, <laughs> she's a she's a tough editor. Yeah, and uh, and it was like, yeah, okay, you're right. She's like, all oh, this is wonderful. She's like, and if they read it about their grandpa, they would love it. She's like, but they're reading about your grandpa, and it doesn't help them deal with their own stuff, which is the point of this book. And I was like, right. So it was stuff like that, um, and also interestingly, um, a lot of stuff that was like that I had put in there initially as sort of like a. Uh, maybe I was self-conscious about like, I knew I wanted to write a book that was more a mental health memoir and like a love story uh, about a marriage more than anything else. But I also was a little self-conscious about, I knew a lot of people who would want to read my book initially would be political people, people who read political books. And so I did have, and there's plenty of that in there, but I did have a little bit of sometimes like feeling like, well, this is kind of interesting, this thing that happened. It's not totally relevant to what I was going through at the time, but this is an interesting story about whatever that is a behind the scenes thing. And so I had a bunch of that in there. Not like I wasn't in love with that stuff, but I felt like, oh, I guess I should have. And she was the one that was like, no, the rest of this is good enough. You don't need that other stuff. And it just takes away from it. And, uh, and so there's plenty of stuff at the cutting room floor that was just like about how pedantic and awful call time is and stuff like that. And she's like, look, that's interesting. You can write an article about it sometime, but it doesn't belong in this book. Well, you may have to uh, put up on a website your outtakes. Yeah, something maybe at some point, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so uh, what has it been like for Diana to to see what's going on in Ukraine? You know, what's interesting about that, I think her parents, have, it's been very difficult for her parents. Um, but for Diana, uh, you know, her first memory ever is leaving Ukraine. And I think that that there's some trauma within that, right? Because um, her first memories, that means came at the age of seven, um, which is a little late for the first memories. But I think just a lot of it had just kind of got washed away by coming here, learning a new language, everything. And so she's like, look, it's terrible. I see it as terrible the same way every American, every other American sees it as terrible. She's like, the way I feel is like, she's like, I was born here. She's like, no, I wasn't. She's like, but I feel like I was. And, uh, and so what's so funny about that is like, obviously her parents, it's, it's been, what's funny about it to me is like, maybe it's because I'm a veteran or because I'm just more, I'm more likely to get sucked in by whatever's in the news than she is. Like she does a very good job of like, she cares what's going on in the world and she wants to impact it, but she's very good at managing like her news diet, you know, um, and for her own mental health. And so I'll get sucked into it and like, you know, our kids, are obviously half Ukrainian. Well, the community here, which is largely a Ukrainian immigrant community in Kansas City, has always referred to itself as the Russian community because what they left was the Soviet Union. They all speak Russian. And, you know, I've been like, look, I'm never referring to our kids as half Russian again. Like they're half Ukrainian. And she's just like, whatever. I don't care what we call it, you know. But her parents, I think it's been interesting to watch them digested because you know they left because of, of anti-semitism so they left as refugees uh, under religious persecution um well you know now they look at the country and they see a president of ukraine who is heroic and, and is jewish and was elected with 70 plus percent of the vote so for them i think it's helped them reconnect to some sense of ukrainian identity as as opposed to what they felt like for a long time for years because like i took russian in school and i was like i'd like to go back and see where you all came from and they were always like they didn't want us we don't want anything to do with it and i think this is in a really tragic way 
help them, you know, reconnect with where they came from in a, in a more positive sense. Well, we're going to go to audience questions, but before I do, I have to ask you the inevitable question. Um, what does the future hold for Jason Kander politically? Um, yeah, no, I mean, like, I think, did I, I can't remember, did I ask you that sort of mandatory question when I interviewed you? I, I don't think you asked me what the future held for Jason Kander. Oh, I should have. That's really what they, <laughs> everyone wanted to know. No, but yeah. Um, anyway, um, I, 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 I get into it a bit, as you know, um, a lot in the epilogue of the book, but ultimately it, I think, I think of it this way is that for uh, about a decade, um, I was living in the future in my mind because the present was, was pretty unpleasant. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're trying to avoid intrusive thoughts and, and memories, um, one of the coping mechanisms for me was I'll think about what I can do next. And then what I can do, because it was also this sense of like, Oh, I'll feel better when, when I do that, that's when I'll feel better. Um, and now the difference is I'm really enjoying my life. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm president of national expansion at veterans community project. And I love the work that I'm doing. Uh, all the royalties from the book go to the, to the organization. Um, I uh, am coaching little league and I'm even playing baseball on an over 30 wood bat baseball team. And it's a blast. And, uh, you know, on that subject, we could use a couple of ringers for our congressional team. Yeah. How good are you? Uh, I would be very good on that team. I mean, <laughs> um, I, uh, I mean, I feel like losing Cedric Richmond was a real blow. That's true. Uh, that and, true. Uh, but I'm not a pitcher, so uh, I wouldn't be able to fill that spot. But uh, no, like I'm decent. I play, you know, I play in a league with a bunch of guys who are ex, uh, either ex-pros in some cases, but mostly ex-college players. Like I hang in there, um, but I love doing it. Like I love that I can do that. And uh, so I guess the answer is, you know, one day we may decide to go do that again, Diana and I, but if we do, it'll probably be like when the kids are grown because I'm just, it's two things. I'm enjoying my life right now. And the other thing is unlike before, I feel like I've actually done enough and I've earned the right to enjoy uh, this part of my life. Whereas before I just didn't feel that way about myself. So it was like, even if I wanted to just be with my family, I didn't feel like that was really an option for me. Well, I'm just looking at the audience questions now and, that was the first audience question, so yeah, I, uh, I was divining the audience uh, interest there. Um, here's another question from the audience. Uh, a writer writes, my father served in World War II, was captured and interred in a POW camp, later came home with PTSD called battle fatigue. What kind of help is there for children and families of diagnosed veterans? Boy, it's a really important question. Um, first of all, there should be, but there really isn't. Uh, any sort of like federal VA type um, trauma therapy for people who um, are married to or the children of uh, veterans. There should be, but there isn't. Um, that said, there's lots of, I mean, like there are a lot of trauma therapists out there. Um, it depends on where you live in the country. There are some universities that do that sort of thing. I know there's a program, I think at NYU, for instance, that uh, focuses on family members of veterans because generational trauma is a real thing. Like it's something Diana and I are very conscious of and, and work very hard not to pass on uh, to our kids. So um, it's a really important question and there are a lot of services out there for it. There's, I don't know of many government services, but there are a lot of um, private services out there for it. Tell us about your own organization. Yeah, thanks. Um, so Veterans Community Project, 
uh, is it's based in Kansas City. We're now a national organization. We do two things primarily. Um, we operate walk-in centers, outreach centers, we call them, for any veteran, regardless of, I mean, really, we it doesn't matter the nature of their service, anything about their service. If they raise their right hand, swore an oath to the country, wore a uniform for even one day, they qualify for 100% of our services. And we can get them access to pretty much anything. We use community providers, everything from mental health to dental to, you know, financial assistance to, you know, financial literacy, like everything. Um, and then the other part is the residential side, which is focused. It's what we're better known for. It's focused on veterans homelessness. And what we do uh, is we create villages of tiny houses with wraparound case management services to sort of restart, recreate that uh, military to civilian transition point. And we have a, a really, really high 85% success rate of uh, moving homeless veterans back into permanent housing in the community uh, and having them be successful contributing members of society, which is, it's about twice what the, the best programs are able to do. Um, and uh, because we serve a wide, uh, a very wide definition of veteran, much wider than the federal government, we don't currently really qualify for hardly any public funds. So we do have to raise our money um, privately. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that's that's what I do. So we've I've been the president of National Expansion for the last three years. We have um, begun uh, providing these services now in the Denver area, uh, and then we're building campuses in in Denver, but also in St. Louis, Sioux Falls, and then we've just purchased a, a property in Oklahoma City, and we'll start uh, building there. Um, and then we got a couple other cities coming on the way soon. Excellent. Um, another audience question. Um... How did you discuss uh, PTSD treatment with your children? And, and uh, let me add on to that. How old were they w w when you did? Um, so Bella, you know, is uh, she's just about to turn two. So right now we're just working on like up and help, <laughs> stuff like that. But, uh, <laughs> but with True, um, it, was, it, it was interesting because um, the book had a lot to do with it. So uh, at first, I mean, I sort of uh, like softened the ground for it because he goes with me to Veterans Community Project sometimes, and he, he knows all about the place and really likes it there. And so he understood that sometimes when people go to war, like they, they have some, some problems when they come back. And, and so he, he understood that concept, accepted it, had no issue with that, and also understood things like, you know, dad doesn't like it when you sneak up on it around the house. And, uh, and he knew that that was because dad has been in a war before, right? So he had that knowledge. And then um, about two or three months before the book came out, it was, I just realized like, okay, he's about to hear a lot of stuff about this. Um, so I should have a conversation with him. And we were sitting there like assembling some Lego stuff. And, uh, and, he's, and how he's old about, is he at this oh, point? Oh, sorry. He's about to turn nine. So he was, he was like eight, eight and a half at this point. And, um, and so I was like, okay, uh, you know, I did this whole thing. Like, so, uh, you know, the book is about, it's, it's about this. I said, do you know why it's called Invisible Storm? And he goes, because there was a storm going on in your head. And I was like, how did you figure that out? He goes, dad, the, the cover of the book is just a picture of your head. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, okay, yeah. And then I explain what PTSD is. And, and I go into this explanation thinking that I was telling him this momentous thing. And you know, kids are like, once you tell them something, they go, okay. And so he just is like, all right, well, can you get me a red four piece? You know, like as we were doing Legos. I'm like, all right. So then, you know, since then we've had two or three conversations about it. And he's just 
totally gets it. He understands that like, sometimes you go to therapy for stuff. And what's really the, of all those conversations, the one that has been the most interesting to me is we had a really in-depth one about it um, a few weeks ago where he asked me, he said, so dad, when you went to like start training in the army, didn't they teach you about PTSD? So you would know, like, maybe you could have it. And I was like, no, and he goes, he was like, what? He's like, shouldn't they have like a day where they have like a class on it? So you can see like in the other soldiers or you can see it in yourself. I was like, yeah, they totally should. And I just thought like that, like an eight year old is a gas that they don't like, that's how obvious it is that it should be something we're educating military personnel about to a much greater degree. Well, that's amazing. Out of the mouths of babes. Yeah. Um, uh, another audience question. Are you aware of how other countries treat PTSD amongst the military and veterans? Uh, and does that say anything to us about anything we should do differently? Um, I'm not super familiar with how a lot of other countries do it right now. But one of the things I write about in the epilogue of the book is what we can learn from other cultures. So to me, one of the best examples um, is actually Native American culture and the way uh, the way Native American tribes handled uh, when there when there had been a war. You know, so you got to go back a few hundred years, but but the way that they took great care to you know um, to assimilate the warrior back into the tribe in a way that didn't make the warrior feel uh, like they were alone and isolated within the tribe. So they would do things like they would have a return rituals where the entire tribe would be there and the warriors would come out and they would tell their stories without really holding anything back from the battles. And then, you know, like watch the steam come out and, you know, sort of like they were letting those stories go. But, but what it really did was it exposed the entire tribe, the entire community to the experience in a much greater way so that, so that the warrior would not feel quite so alone. Um, and I compare that, you know, to what we do here, which is, you know, I, I, say it somewhat flippantly in the book, but for emphasis, but that, you know, that's a far cry from, well, it's Veterans Day. So, you know, you're going to get a free entree at, at Applebee's. Uh, but, and we would prefer that you just go back to being the person you were before the war. So it, I think it has a lot to do with why, uh, in, in particularly in a time when, you know, we've gone a couple of generations consecutive now uh, with no form of mandatory service, so it's it can be a very isolating feeling to come back and feel like, you know, none of the people you spend your day to day around really understand you, not just what you've been through, but like you. Um, another question from the audience. Um, in the past five years, uh, what has changed in PTSD diagnosis and treatment and what do you hope will change in the next five to 10 years? Uh, it's a great question. Um, I wish I were like a clinician so I could answer it better. I can, you know, in my limited knowledge, what I can say is I can say some advancements that have happened in, um, in America in terms of the way the VA handles things. So, um, for instance, and this is not as well known as it should be, so I'm glad somebody asked. It has been for many years the case that if you don't have an honorable discharge, if you have anything other than an honorable discharge, then you're really persona non grata at the VA. Unfortunately, that is largely still true, with the exception of you can get at least initial assistance uh, in behavioral health and mental health at the VA, regardless of your discharge status. Um, there also are some uh, more efforts made now to review things like discharges, because in general, whether you're whether it's a mental health issue or whether it is um, a physical health issue, I I personally find kind of absurd the idea that we 
take any veterans and say, you don't have access to the VA system. And we, not just for discharge status, for a lot of different things, we exclude people from the VA system. Things, well, for instance, there's something most people don't know. If you were, if you're a National Guard member and you were mobilized on January 6th, and you spent like five months guarding the Capitol, but you never went to Iraq or Afghanistan, and then you get out after like three or four years of service, federal government doesn't consider you a veteran. You can't go to the VA. Uh, so we have a really narrow site aperture on what we consider a veteran. That is slowly being expanded a little bit, um, but it needs to be much wider. Uh, and that, that would, it would save a lot of people. Um, a lot of people are familiar with the statistic that on average, 22 veterans a day take their life in America. What most people don't know is that out of that 22, on average, 16 of them are at the time that they take their life not connected to any veteran-specific services of any kind. And I think that's a pretty staggering number. And it means that we have to we have to create a much lower barrier to entry to get those kinds of services. Um, another audience question, which I'm uh, reluctant to ask uh, because I don't want to ask any suggesting uh, any further stigma to the diagnosis but the question is, do you think PTSD factors into the recruitment of veterans into alt-right militia groups? Is there any connection or correlation there? Um, I don't think that PTSD does, but I do think that um, when you come out of the service, whether you have trauma or not, you've come out of the, 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 the act of leaving the service is a little bit traumatic in and of itself because... <clears throat> You've gone from every day you get up and you know what you're a part of. It, whether you have, you know, what we would consider sort of the the right brand of patriotic impulses to begin with, or, or ideas about the world or not, like you're part of a unit. You got people you serve with. You're all working toward one thing every day, and then you get dumped out in the world, and you're kind of like, okay, now who am I now? And there, there is definitely a sense. And I think this is true for anybody who like has spent a career doing something like you could be a postal worker, but like the day after you leave the postal service, it's, oh, it's strange to be like, I don't deliver the mail anymore. Like it doesn't really matter what it is. And so I think that in the case of the military, where it's a, it's a very pronounced sense of personal identity to be attached to it, that I do think it can make you vulnerable to anybody who comes along to try to recruit you uh, to any sense of belonging. And so to me, the, I ask the question a different way. It's not, does it make you more vulnerable to being recruited by the alt-right? It maybe more is, it, are those of us who are operating in the forces of good doing enough to enlist people as they, you know, to invite people as they leave the service into causes and, and, a, and a cause greater than themselves, because that is what people are looking for. Now, the other thing I would say that I think people always need to keep in mind when they think about the political beliefs of veterans is that I think people have a tendency to look at the fact that you know, yes, the military does by about a 10% margin skew conservative. Um, but it's important to remember that the military also is disproportionately drawn from the Midwest and the South, and it's way disproportionately male. And if you show me any workplace in the United States where the vast majority of people there are, are men who come from the South and the Midwest, I'm going to say to you, it's going to skew conservative, right? Um, and so, I think that's important to remember as well, because when we look at who ends up in these alt-right groups, I'm sure that it is the vast majority are men who come from the South and the Midwest. So there's there's some danger of like um, reaching some of the wrong correlation conclusions as well. 
Well, we are uh, practically out of time. Uh, I have one last question for you, and then uh, and then we'll have to wrap. Um, what's the next book by Jason Cantor? Uh, um, a friend of mine uh, keeps joking that, you know, because my first book was like memoir-ish, and then this book is a real memoir that's kind of like, yeah, I remember in like chapter nine of the first book where I said I didn't think I had PTSD, like never mind. So my, my buddy is like, I don't know what you're going to do for a third book. You're going to have to be like, never mind. Uh, here's a completely other twist. Um, so I don't know. I don't really have um, anything in particular. I do sort of have this idea creeping around my head that will probably be an article maybe by the end of the year. I really want to write about um, something I mentioned a moment ago about, you know, what it has meant to our culture to go such a long period of time without some version of mandatory service. It doesn't have to be military, but I really am troubled by the idea that we're losing any positive sense of American identity and, and American shared anything. And, uh, and so it's something I'm interested in delving into, but I think it's probably more of an article. So I don't know. I don't know. My wife hopefully will allow me to co-author one of her books at some point. That'll be nice. But yeah. Well, uh, thank you for the discussion today. Um, Really admire your work. Um, Love the book. Really extraordinarily well-written, important work. Uh, Encourage uh, all of you watching, if you haven't had a chance to buy it, to read it. Uh, Please uh, get your copy today, Invisible Storm. Um, Really important work. And uh, But in addition to being really important, uh, it's also a wonderful read, uh, very engaging, uh, as I said uh, earlier, um, very funny uh, in places, uh, as well as very poignant. Uh, and and I think, uh, as you were saying, Jason, it's going to be helpful to uh, a lot of people around the country who have struggled with PTSD, maybe didn't realize they had it, maybe needed an additional push to seek treatment for it. Um, it will help, I think, family and other members recognize the signs. Uh, and, and so uh, another great public service uh, in writing this book. Um, so thank you again. Uh, once again, the book, the full title is Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. Um, I would encourage everyone to pick up a copy at your local bookstore. Um, or if you buy it online, you'll see that uh, it has five stars. It is a five-star rating. Now, admittedly, that's five out of 15, but still, it's very good. <laughs> no, it's five out of five. It's a total home run. And uh, uh, so please uh, get your copy today. Uh, and I want to thank, again, the Commonwealth Club. If you want to watch more programs by the Commonwealth Club, um, please visit their website at commonwealthclub.org slash online. Uh, again, I'm Congressman Adam Schiff. Um, this has been... Uh, interview with Jason Kander about his wonderful book, Invisible Storm. And thank you for your participation. Uh, Adam, thank you very much for doing this. And I would just like to say this has got to be the uh, most fun version that anybody has had of being asked questions by Adam Schiff in a couple of years. (laughs) So, uh, So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. 
Thank you for listening and for your support. 